Hebrews 11. I'll be reading verse 1, verse 23, and verses 32 through 40 for the New Testament reading. So Hebrews 11, 1, and then we will go to Exodus 1, 1, and read all the way through 2, 10. That will be the sermon text for today. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hebrews 1, 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that, he, that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these... Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let us go now to Exodus 1. Again, we will read Exodus 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, And see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You know, another benefit of taking three sermons to introduce the book of Exodus and to situate it in the overarching story of redemption which is told in the Bible is that it now frees us to dive down into the details of this marvelous story without getting lost in the weeds. We've gotten our bearings over the past few weeks. I hope we have at least. And so now we are in a good position to engage with the text of Exodus itself while keeping the big picture story ever in mind. Before we come to our text for today, I wish to remind you that it was Moses who wrote the book of Exodus. He wrote it along with Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In that time, between the Exodus event and the conquest of Canaan, while Israel wandered in the wilderness those 40 years. And who did he write this book for? It's an important question to ask, isn't it? Who did Moses write this book for, along with the other four books that together make up what we call the Pentateuch? Well, yes, he wrote it for us, but first of all, he wrote it for the people of Israel, freshly redeemed from Egyptian bondage. They were his first audience. These books were for them before they were for us. We are to remember that the Israelites spent many, many years in Egyptian bondage. Certainly some of the stories that are contained within Genesis were well known and preserved among the faithful Hebrews. But I think it is safe to say that some had forgotten what God had done with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
I'm sure that the promises God had made to them were forgotten or corrupted in the minds of, of many of the Hebrews as they dwelt in that idolatrous land, generation after generation. So when Moses wrote Genesis and Exodus, he was, among other things, reminding the Hebrews of their heritage. He was, in essence, introducing many of them to their God, to their Creator, Redeemer, and Covenant Lord. As we consider the book of Genesis and Exodus, we must see that they function in the same way for us. For our God is the God of the Hebrews. He is also our Creator. He is our Redeemer. He is our Covenant Lord. For we have been engrafted into the Israel of God by faith. Abraham is our father by faith. His God is our God. And it is here in Genesis and Exodus that God, our Creator and Redeemer, is introduced to us. And so do you wish to know who God is? Then you must start not with the Gospel of Matthew, not with the New Testament Scriptures, but with Genesis and with Exodus. These books are are so very foundational. Yes, the New Testament revelation is even more clear concerning who God is, but it is more clear not because it presents something different to us about God than what is said in the first books of the Bible. No, the New Testament Scripture simply builds upon the revelation and the foundation previously given. And so the point is this. Genesis and Exodus are foundational books. They reveal, among other things, God our Creator and Redeemer. In these books, Moses says to Israel and to us, Behold your God. And so we had better pay very careful attention to what is said here in these books. The first thing that I would like for you to consider about our text for today is that the book of Exodus is clearly a continuation of the story that is told in Genesis. At the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus fit almost seamlessly together. In verses 1 through 4 of Exodus 1, we find a listing of Jacob's 11 sons. And in verse 5, we are reminded that Joseph was already in Egypt. So then, there were 12 sons of Jacob who went down into Egypt, but not not all at the same time. And in verse 5, we are also informed that the total number of people who went down into Egypt was 70. And so this was such a small number, wasn't it? Especially when compared to the great multitude of Egyptians that dwelt in in the land in those days. Jacob and his clan were a small drop in the bucket. They, they would have hardly been noticed as they went down into Egypt. Remember, they went uh, there to be uh, sheltered, to be preserved in, in the days of, of the great famine. And they would have hardly been noticed. Only 70, just a drop in the bucket. And yet God had very big plans for them. In verses 6 and 7, we are reminded of God's plans for this little family. There we read, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Here we are to remember the promises that God made to Abraham, and also to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, first to Abraham, Go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Such a foundational text and we must remember it as we come now into the, the, the story of the Exodus. God had set Abraham apart from the nations. He had promised to do marvelous things in and through him and in and through his descendants. He, one man, would become a great nation. And, and later in his life, after years of barrenness, God clarified to Abraham that his very own son would be, to, be his heir. And he brought him outside, the Lord did, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So here Abraham was struggling in his later years, wondering, are the promises of God going to be fulfilled? I don't even have one son. And yet God has promised to make me into a great nation. So God brings him outside and says, look at the stars. Your, your offspring are going to be like that. So numerous. Uh, this same promise regarding many offspring emerging from Abraham was repeated many times in the Genesis narrative. And here in Exodus, we begin to see the fulfillment of it. Now, the little clan of Abraham grew into a great multitude while in Egypt. I've urged you not to forget Genesis as we move through Exodus. And it would be difficult to overstate the importance of this. Genesis and Exodus are to be read as one for the Exodus story does fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Genesis story. So do not forget Genesis, brothers and sisters. This will probably not be the last time I say that. I'm going to say it again and again in our study of Exodus. And when we come to study the book of Leviticus someday, Lord willing, I will say it again and again. Do not forget Genesis. Do not forget the promises that were made to Abraham beginning in Genesis 12. And do not forget the story that is told in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 either. That story regarding creation, God's covenant with man in the garden temple, the promise of glorified eternal life and the blessed presence of God and of eternal Sabbath rest conditioned upon perfect obedience and of the forfeiture of that blessed hope through Adam's sin, is most foundational. We must remember that story, for everything that flows from it really is in response to the problem that was introduced when Adam fell into sin. God determined to bring redemption to His fallen people and to bring them into His blessed presence to life eternal, into that eternal Sabbath rest through a Redeemer. We cannot forget the foundational story that is told in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and, and even following. There's so much to say about that and so little time to say it, but for now I think it will suffice to establish or maintain the connection in your minds between what was lost at the time of the fall and what is being regained through God's program of redemption. I'll summarize it with these words. Eternal life and the blessed presence of God, that is eternal Sabbath rest through the Savior that God has provided. Adam forfeited it. Christ has earned it. What happened at the time of the Exodus was a significant advancement in God's program and of redemption. We must not lose this connection, brothers and sisters. 
the first seven verses of Exodus link this book to Genesis very tightly. And to the story that is told there, we must not fail to make the connection. Secondly, consider that the story of Exodus, consider that in this story, the story of Exodus, the seed of the serpent continues to bite at the heel of the seed of the woman. That is how the story begins. The seed of the serpent continues to bite at the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, there are other ways to say this. I could have simply said that in the Exodus story, there is hostility between the powers of this world and the people of God. You can see it clearly here in verse 8 through to the end of chapter 1. Here we learn about the harsh and oppressive treatment of the Hebrews by Pharaoh. But I have said it this way in the story of Exodus, the seed of the serpent continues to bite at the heel of the seed of the woman. In order to remind you of the promise of the gospel delivered in the presence of Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. To the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What did these words mean? What did these words mean? One, a Savior would one day arise from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, this Savior would defeat Satan. This Savior would overturn his kingdom and his works. In this curse that was delivered to the serpent by God, there was this promise. One day a Savior would come. He would descend from Eve and he would crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat Satan and overturn his kingdom and his works. Two, until then, there would be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As the Genesis narrative unfolds, it becomes very, very clear that this is not about the hostility that exists between humans and snakes. I don't like snakes. I don't know very many people who do. Maybe there's something to that, you know. But this is not about that, the hostility that exists between human beings and snakes, but rather, this is about the hostility that exists between those who are of God and those who are of the evil one. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent are all humans. The thing that differentiates them is faith, the thing that differentiates them is allegiance. So the meaning is this. God will always have His people in the world and Satan will have His. There will be perpetual hostility between these two groups until the consummation. The story of Cain and Abel that immediately follows this, this passage that I have just read in Genesis 3.15 and the first promise of the gospel the story of Cain and Abel is the first instance of this hostility. Where you see that Abel is, is of the Lord and Cain is not. And Cain rises up and he puts Abel to death unjustly. And God raises up another in his place. And so we see that that story is the first instance of this hostility. But the theme repeats time and time again throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Coming to its climax in the crucifixion of the Christ the Son of Man, the Son of God. And so there will be this perpetual hostility between those who belong to the evil one and those who belong 
to God. That is the storyline that is established in Genesis chapters 3, verse 15 and following. 3. Though there will be hostility, it it was promised that the seed of the serpent would strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would strike at the serpent's head. In other words, in due time, God and His people will have the ultimate victory. There would be suffering. There would be oppression amongst the people of God. Satan would win victories, but God would win the victory ultimately through His Messiah. Satan would do damage. Perhaps it would be better to say it that way. But in the end, God would have the ultimate victory. Here, in the story that is told in the book of Exodus, we see a massive example of this. Let us consider now the ruthless oppression that is described here. The ruthless oppression of the Hebrew people, God's chosen people, the children of Abraham, by the most powerful nation on earth at the time. Let us consider the ruthless oppression. First, we learn that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph, you remember, had favor with the Pharaoh in his day. He was elevated by God to a position of great power within Egypt. Only the Pharaoh himself was more powerful than him. You remember Joseph. That's a tremendous story, isn't it? The sovereignty of God over suffering. We learned so much as we considered Joseph. Uh, He was elevated to, to great power within Egypt. But this new king did not know him. Undoubtedly, the brothers of Joseph who came down into Egypt along with their descendants enjoyed a privileged place within Egypt for some time after Joseph's death, given his fame. Perhaps this is one of the reasons the Hebrews flourished in Egypt as they did, but eventually the situation changed. A new pharaoh came to power, and it is likely that the political climate had changed within Egypt so that foreigners were viewed with suspicion. If you study Egyptian history, you do know that there was a period of time like this where Foreigners were viewed with great suspicion. And when the text says that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph, it, it means that he did not have any regard for Joseph. He may have known of him in the, the history books, you see. But he had no regard for Joseph in the way that the previous Pharaoh did. This Pharaoh, we see, was a very skilled politician. He advanced his plans to oppress the Hebrews by playing off of the fear of the people. I'll say here by by, by, by way of a side note, beware of propaganda, brothers and sisters. Beware of propaganda from the left or the right in our current political climate. Verse 9, He said to His people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from, from the land. So He plays off of, of the fear of His people. Um, he he says, if we allow them to remain as they are, powerful, it's going to, it's going to lead to our, our demise. Now, I've been convinced that verse 10 should probably be translated not as escape from the land, but rather arise from the land. In other words, the fear was not that the Hebrews would leave if foreign powers invaded, but that they would arise from the land and fight with the enemies of Egypt to gain their independence. I think that is a very valid translation of the Hebrew here, and it makes more sense given the context. The Pharaoh played off the fears of his people and said, we we had better do something about this great population. They've grown too strong. We must oppress them because they uh, they might lead 
an uprising someday and overthrow us. Either way, Pharaoh's proposal was that the Egyptians deal shrewdly with the Hebrews so as to diminish and even control their population. At first, the Egyptians sought to diminish the Hebrew population through forced labor. Heavy burdens were laid upon the Hebrews as they were tasked with building the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. The suffering of the Hebrews, you will notice, is not detailed for us at all. We are not told of, of, of the, the suffering that took place among the individual Hebrews and their families. But it's not difficult to imagine, is it? I think it's important for us to imagine the suffering, in fact. Families would have been torn apart. Husbands and wives would have been separated for long periods of time, making procreation and child-rearing nearly impossible. Starvation would have been common, given the difficulty of tending to crops and herds while being sent away from home into forced labor. Men and women would have literally been worked to death. That is what is being described here. This is not, this is not light oppression. This is heavy oppression. Remember, the goal was not to build these military store cities, but to decrease the population of the Hebrews. That was the aim, to actually decrease the population. Notice the emphasis upon the severity of the work. The Hebrews were afflicted with heavy burdens, we are told. They were oppressed. They were treated ruthlessly. The Egyptians made the Hebrews' lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's a very difficult time for the Hebrew people. And we are to imagine it. We are to imagine what it would have been like to live under such a situation. Please allow me to make three very brief observations before continuing on with the narrative. One, we must not forget that these were God's chosen people who suffered. These were God's chosen people who suffered. They were set apart from the nations so that God might work in and through them. God entered into a covenant with them, and yet this is what they experienced. Suffering, ruthless oppression. Life in this fallen world is filled with suffering, brothers and sisters, and God's people are not exempt. That much is clear as we study Genesis and now come into the book of Exodus. God's people suffered, but God's people have hope. We have hope that goes beyond this life, hope for the life to come. Two, Given the storyline of Scripture, this campaign to control the population of the Hebrews must not only be viewed as attempted genocide, but as war against God and His plan of redemption. When the Egyptians sought to exterminate the Hebrews, they were assaulting the very people through whom God had determined to bring the Messiah into the world. Don't forget about that. To engage in genocide is always to war against God, His law, and His image, of course. But here the Egyptians did serve Satan in a special way as they warred against God and His promise concerning a Savior that would come from the offspring of Abraham. Remember I told you, don't forget Genesis. This is not just genocide against some random people. This is not just infanticide that we are to hear about, but rather this is... This is the oppression of God's chosen people. From this people, the Messiah would come. 
seed of Eve, yes, but with the calling of Abraham, we learned that specifically this Messiah is going to come from, from Abraham's offspring. And here they are, a great multitude in, Egypt, in Egyptian bondage now. And Pharaoh is warring against him. So we have this kind of ultimate example of, of the seed of the serpent striking against the heel of the seed of the woman. This is a war between Satan and his people and God and his we must see it as such. Three, God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Men may try, but God's purposes will always prevail. He even accomplishes His purposes through suffering and in times of oppression. Isn't this an important lesson for us to learn as God's people, brothers and sisters? The book of Exodus brings it to us in such a powerful way we must learn it. I think it was a very important lesson for the people of Hebrew, even after they were redeemed from Egyptian bondage, to learn and to know for certain that God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Men may try, but God's purposes will always prevail. Here in verse 12 we read, But the more the Hebrews were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. How did this happen? It, 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 it was miraculous, I think. That is what we are to see. I mean, this campaign that Pharaoh launched, this campaign of oppression that Pharaoh launched against the people of Israel was well thought out and, and well executed. It should have done the trick. But what do we see instead? Uh, the people flourish in the midst of it because God was with them. Forced labor was not the height of Pharaoh's wickedness and cruelty. Now after that had failed, he took a more direct approach by requesting that the Hebrew midwives put the male Hebrew children to death shortly after they were born. Midwives are women who help other women give birth. In those days, midwives were typically without children of their own. They were free, therefore, to leave the home and to serve in this way. Shifra and Pua are mentioned by name, not because they were the only two midwives serving the Hebrews. No, in fact, the Hebrews were far too numerous to have only two midwives serving them. But they are mentioned by name, most likely because they were the senior or lead midwives, Shifra and Pua. Pharaoh spoke to them, probably not directly, but through his officials, saying, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. This was a terrible decree. Can you imagine hearing it? Putting yourself in Shifra and Pua's place. Can you imagine receiving this decree? Pharaoh commanded that they kill, murder the male children. Of Israel. Why the males? Well, an imbalance in the number of males and females would certainly disrupt the procreation for generation to come, for generations to come. Also, if the Egyptians were concerned about an uprising, having fewer males amongst the population would be to their benefit. But again, do not forget the promise made to Abraham. His son would bless the nations. His son would bless the nations, and certainly this assault against the male children of the Hebrews pertains to that. That is the thing that is 
trying to be extinguished by the evil one. This promise concerning the son of Abraham who would bless the nations. Now, now put yourself in the place of the midwives, Shifra and Puah, and all they represented. They were in a very difficult position. As you can imagine, it was no small thing to disobey the order of Pharaoh. Certainly their lives were on the line. And I would not doubt if great rewards were offered to them, should they follow through on the king's decree. But Pharaoh underestimated the faith, love, and courage of these women, didn't he? Have you ever wondered what Pharaoh was thinking? Did he really think that he could persuade these women, Shifra, Puah, and all the other Hebrew midwives, to commit this heinous act? Did he think they would do it? In fact, history would tell us that his plan was not at all far-fetched. History shows that men and women will in fact do very terrible things if it means that they will escape some suffering or inconvenience and come to have some benefit or pleasure. I think in the past I, I maybe would have thought, what a ridiculous plan Pharaoh had. Did he really think he'd get these women to do so, something so awful? And then, as I've grown older, and as I've watched the world and the way that the world is, my view on that has changed. He probably knew human nature pretty good, in fact. And he knew that if he would put enough pressure on these midwives, they probably would do this terrible thing. And if he offered enough of a reward, they probably would follow through on these things. And so I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, do not be naive. When Pharaoh gave this order, he expected that it would be followed, for in his experience, men and women would be very cruel if the right amount of pressure were put on them, or if the incentive were high enough. In our land, hundreds of thousands of abortions are conducted every year. Mothers choose to murder their own children, and we might ask what drives them to do it. Perhaps there is outside pressure, perhaps there is some other perceived incentive I doubt that either the pressure or the incentive compared to what these Hebrew midwives encountered, but they themselves will put their very own children to death. I mention this because it's an important issue for us to keep in the forefront, isn't it, brothers and sisters? I mention this not to condemn those who have had abortions, but to say to them, run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But we must come to terms with the reality, brothers and sisters. In our land, hundreds of thousands of children are murdered in the womb every single year by their own mothers. What drives them to do it except some pressure being applied to them from, from the outside or even some desire within themselves for, for comfort, for ease. I understand that the issue is sometimes more complicated than that, no doubt. But oftentimes this is the case. But what compelled these Hebrew midwives to disobey Pharaoh's decree. Verse 17 tells us, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women, Shifra and Puah, and the midwives they led, are to be considered heroes of the faith. I've said their names over and over again, more than I need to in fact, because I think their names should be known to us. Shifra and Puah. 
They are heroes of the faith. They feared God. They risked their lives when they disobeyed the king. They are to be commended. God used them to bring Moses into the world and also the Christ. By the way, here we do have evidence that although many within Israel may have lost sight of their God and the promises of God during those many years in Egypt, not all did. That many did will become clear to us when we come to the story of Israel worshiping the golden calf in the wilderness after their deliverance from Egypt. You know, in, in that episode, we, we come to the realization that, man, the, the Hebrew people had been corrupted by the idolatry of Egypt. The idolatry was deeply rooted within their hearts. So there was a great corruption that took place concerning God and the promises of God amongst the Hebrews. But not all had given in to the corruption. Not all had forgotten uh, the promises of God. Some were faithful. These women, Shifra and Pua, and, and the other God-fearing midwives are an example of these. Add them to the long list of the heroines of the faith. They let the male children live. Verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Can you imagine how fearful they must have been to go stand before Pharaoh after disobeying them as they did? That must have been a terrifying experience. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's a great answer, isn't it? Some have wondered about this response, by the way. Did the midwives lie to Pharaoh when they said this? And if so, was this right? Was this right for them to lie to Pharaoh if they did? One, two brief remarks. One, I wonder if it is in fact sinful to tell a lie in extreme situations such as these. This is a difficult ethical question, isn't it? Is it right to tell a lie in extreme situations such as, as these. I, I think it is right for us, in fact, to recognize a kind of hierarchy in God's law and to see that some laws have priority over others. Things aren't always neat and clean in this fallen world, in case you haven't noticed, brothers and sisters. For example, the Sabbath day is to be honored, but if your neighbor's ox falls into a ditch, you are to work to get it out. Both are a part of God's law, but, but one thing takes a priority over another, namely the preservation of life, even the life of an oxen or, or someone's personal property. And so too, when, it is an un, when an unjust ruler commands the slaughter of innocent children, is it sinful to use deceit to preserve the life of the innocent? I have a hard time saying it is. I, I wonder if this is not the right thing to do, to, to use some level of deceit in order to preserve life in a, an extreme situation like this. I, I do say extreme and emphasize it in order to also say to you, be careful with this principle, brothers and sisters. It can be easily misused and abused. But if you ever find yourself in such a terrible situation as the one these midwives were in, I don't believe it is wrong to act as they did for the preservation of human life. I think of the way that some hid the Jews when Hitler and his armies were seeking their extermination? Did they sin against God when they deceived the soldiers and lied to them about the Jews who were hiding in their, in their basement? I, I don't think so. Two, after saying that, that risky thing, you know, I'll say this, I'm not sure the midwives lied. I can easily imagine the midwives spreading the word amongst the Hebrew women saying, don't call for us. You know, they get the decree from Pharaoh, put the children to death after they emerge from the womb. And then the midwife spread the word, don't call for us, at least not right away. 
Deal with it yourselves. Be attentive. Be very attentive. When you give birth to your children, just trust us, you must do it. The word translated as vigorous in verse 19 means lively and active. And so it was probably true. The Hebrew women, maybe because they were warned, were more lively and active in the birthing process than the Egyptian women who probably depended much more on their midwives to do the work so that the Hebrew midwives did not find an opportunity to secretly put the male children to death as the Pharaoh had wished. Either way, the midwives feared the Lord and they were cunning. They were crafty in order to get around this awful decree. These women are commended for what they did in this extreme situation. In verse 20, we read that God, dwelt with, God dealt with the midwives, um, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. He dealt well with the midwives, rather. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them family. So He rewarded them for their heroism in this very difficult situation. Pharaoh was determined to diminish the Hebrew people, though. And so Pharaoh commanded all his people, all the Egyptian people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is full-blown, government-sanctioned, out in the open, genocide, isn't it? Do you guys read history at all? You're reading history now, of course. It's good to read history and to see what powerful governments will sometimes do to oppress their own people. It's okay to be aware of this stuff, brothers and sisters. It's very good that we be aware of this stuff. We cannot be naive. Why the Nile? Why were these Egyptians to throw the male children into the Nile? One, it was clean. This would have been an easy way for the Egyptians to follow through on the king's decree compared to other ways of putting little children to death. It was relatively clean. Two, the Nile was considered by the Egyptians to be divine. So then these were offerings to the gods of the Nile, you know, in the minds of the Egyptians. The conscience would in this way be comforted, therefore, if it is the will of Pharaoh that these children be killed, and if it is the will of the god of the Nile to receive them, then who am I as an Egyptian to disagree? Or so the reasoning would go. There's a biblical theme that I want for you to recognize before we move on to the last section of our text for today, and that is the theme of the waters of death and destruction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It was a problem. These waters of... These waters of death and destruction, if I might call them, they were not a place suitable for human habitation. And so remember what God did with these primordial waters that covered the earth in the beginning. He separated the land from the seas as He formed and fashioned the earth, making it suitable for human, human life. That's how the book of Genesis begins. And do not forget that at the time of the flood, God judged the world with water. The earth was, in a way, returned to that primordial state, but God caused the waters to recede by the power of His Spirit. And Noah and his family emerged from the temple ark to worship on the mountain and to repopulate the earth as a new humanity. It's this theme of, of, of the waters of, of death and destruction has been with us already. And now the waters threaten again. 
They threaten to swallow up the people of God. They threaten to swallow up the promises of God and the Messiah of God. First the Nile, and later we will see the Red Sea once again. But God will have the victory. He'll provide a way. He'll bring forth His Redeemer from the waters. The last portion of the story that we will consider today is truly marvelous. Here we see that God was indeed faithful to fulfill His promises and to raise up a Redeemer. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. You know this about the birth of Moses. You know that this is about the birth of Moses, rather, though he is not named until verse 10. And I think we should make note of the fact that Moses was a Levite, His father's name is not given here, but he was from the house of Levi. The Levites would be priests in Israel, and Moses was of this tribe. His mother saw that he was a fine child, and you're thinking to yourself, well, what mother doesn't think that their child is a fine child? Really, this must mean that she knew there was something special about him. In fact, this is what Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So so then this was an act of faith. This was an act of faith by Moses' parents. Faith in whom? Faith in God. And faith in what? The book of Hebrews teaches us that it was faith in the promises of God concerning a Savior, redemption, and the new heavens and new earth. This was not just faith like, like this. God, I, I, I believe that you are able to take care of my child. It was that, of course. But in the context of Scripture, and according to the book of Hebrews, this faith that the parents of Moses possessed was faith in God concerning His precious and very great promises about a Savior, about a Messiah, about a new heavens and new earth. This is what their faith was about. It was in God and concerning these promises that were given to the forefathers. And so they acted in this way, trusting in the Lord, because they knew. They knew their God. They knew that they had been set apart by Him and for a purpose. And so Moses' mother and father acted very courageously as they trusted in the Lord. Moses' mother hid him for three months. The the details of her anguish are, are not recorded for us. But it's not hard to imagine. She must have been terribly afraid. She must have been internally conflicted day after day. Can you imagine her there with Moses in the womb? She's probably trying to hide herself, you know, so that the Egyptians don't notice that she's pregnant. Uh, That would be difficult, I think. But she gives birth and she's having to keep the child quiet and concealed. She must have woke up every day with this this turmoil in her heart. What shall I do with my my precious baby boy? And she must have gone to sleep every night with that very question on her mind. It must have been a very difficult time. But when she could no longer hide the child, she must have known that she was being found out and that the child's life was in imminent danger. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, If we are reading Genesis and Exodus carefully, we will probably see a connection between Moses' basket and the ark that Noah constructed according to the command of God. Do you remember that story? The flood waters threatened Noah was to construct an ark, and in that ark 
God preserved His people. God preserved His promises through that vessel. And now we see that something similar is happening again as Moses' mother constructs this ark for her, for her child. And through this vessel, God is going to sustain His people and His promises. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The names of Moses' family members are not given here, but in Numbers 26-59, uh, we learn that Moses' father's name was Amram. His mother's name was Jochebed. Um, these had two sons, Aaron and Moses. Their sister's name was Miriam. So add Jochebed and Miriam to the list of courageous women used by the Lord to accomplish His purposes. And in verse 5 we read, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. So then we see that the daughter of Pharaoh did not inherit her father's ruthless heart. Do you see it? She was filled with tenderness. She was filled with compassion. And now you are beginning to see that God works in very mysterious ways. Not only does He accomplish His purposes even through suffering, He also works great acts of deliverance through people and in places that we would not expect. Moses, through his life, though his life was threatened by Pharaoh, would in fact be sheltered by Pharaoh and raised in Pharaoh's own house. And this because of the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. The story gets even better. Moses' sister was very bold. She courageously spoke to Pharaoh's daughter, saying, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child from you? Now, now was this planned? Maybe it was. Maybe the family thought, Well, if only we can send Moses adrift down towards where Pharaoh's daughter bathes. She seems to be a compassionate woman. Maybe she will take pity. Maybe it was planned. Or maybe Miriam simply was very quick on her feet. We don't know for sure. But this was a brilliant thing and a very bold thing that she did to speak to Pharaoh's daughter in this way and to suggest this. And, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. The girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So what, what a happy turn of events in such a dark story. One moment, Jochebed was sitting, setting her beloved child adrift down the Nile in a basket, not knowing what would become of him. You could almost imagine her turning away towards her home, weeping, thinking that her child was gone, never to be seen again. But moments later, she is summoned by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own precious baby boy. It's, it's such a happy story. And not only that, she's going to be paid for it. Pharaoh's daughter is going to give her her wages. It's almost as if she received him back from the dead. Isn't it? It's almost as if she received her son back from the dead. In fact, that is how we are to see it. Verse 10, When the child grew older, she, that is Jochebed, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I drew him out of the water. Now the stage is set for the Exodus story. 
Israel would be delivered from Egyptian bondage, and this great act of deliverance would be worked through this man, Moses. You can see that God's hand was upon him, and upon his family too, from the time of his birth. He would one day deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage, but first he would be sheltered in Egypt in Pharaoh's own home. And do not forget, brothers and sisters, that the early life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ followed the same path. He, being the second Moses and the one greater than Moses, was also threatened as a child, and his life was preserved in Egypt before returning to Israel to accomplish his work there. Now please allow me to conclude by making three very brief suggestions for application. More could be said, but I'll leave you with this. One, this story must encourage the people of God to not be given over to utter despair in times of oppression. There will be times of oppression for the people of God as we sojourn in this world, brothers and sisters. We have lived in a time of great and unusual freedom and comfort. And it may not always be this way. Certainly our brothers and sisters around the world today live in very different circumstances, and the same has been true for our brothers and sisters throughout history. The powers of this world do often move against the people of God to oppress them. This has been the norm. It is a story as old as sin. And as we consider the Exodus story, we must be encouraged to not despair in difficult times, in times of oppression. What shall we do then? Two, I say we must honor God in times of oppression. As you can see, there were some from amongst the Hebrews who did this very thing as the heavy hand of the Egyptians descended upon them. They quietly and peacefully honored God. They are all women who are emphasized in this passage, Shifra, Pua, and the midwives, Jochebed, and Miriam. I'm sure there were men who honored God too in those days. Perhaps they are not mentioned because most of them were sent away to labor as slaves But the point is this, men and women must honor God always, and even in times of oppression, when the powerful within the culture seek to push God's people down. Three, this will require us to trust in God. Clearly, these women who are mentioned in this passage were women of faith. The midwives feared God, we were told. And Moses' family hid him by faith, the book of Hebrews says. When I say trust in God, I do not mean trust in Him to keep you from all harm, from all suffering, and from death. For God has not promised to keep His people from these things. No, I am saying trust Him to keep His promises and to accomplish all of His purposes as revealed in the Scriptures. Trust Him to keep you alive for all eternity. Trust Him to bring you safely into the new heavens and earth along with all of His elect. Trust Him to make all things right in the end. That is what these women hoped for. This is what the book of Hebrews says. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This is where the hope of these women was set, in God and in the new heavens and new earth. The same must be true for us. Trust in God, brothers and sisters. One of the major lessons that is learned in this introductory portion of the book of Exodus is that God is sovereign over all things. He's even sovereign over oppressive regimes and the suffering of His chosen people. 
and he will surely keep his promises. This was a lesson that Old Covenant Israel needed to learn as they sojourned in the wilderness and toward the promised land. A very important lesson that they needed to learn. And it is a lesson that the New Covenant people of God must learn too. For we are sojourners. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great stories contained for us in the Holy Scriptures. For in them your your power is revealed. Your covenant faithfulness is revealed. And our proper response to these things is revealed. So Lord, we pray that you will help us as we sojourn in this world. As we experience trials and tribulations of many kinds and even oppression, O Lord. May we not be given over to despair. But may we have bold and confident faith. May we be found living for your honor, glory, and praise, O Lord. Sustain us, we pray. Help us to be your faithful children. In Christ's name, amen.